0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Good morning, Harvest, and welcome to our Sunday online service. Um, Pastor Dave was actually scheduled to preach today. Uh, he was going to continue the Church at Home series and talking about the theme of covenants. Uh, But actually, he let me and Pastor Frank know on uh, Thursday morning that he came down with a fever Wednesday night. And, um, you know, just uh, wanted, we wanted to be safe uh, and we wanted him to rest. So he asked me if I could preach uh, the sermon I was supposed to preach last week. So, uh, two weeks in a row, um, I got a fever last week and Petey got a fever this week. So if you could just please pray for us as pastors, to, for our health, um, and to protect us so that we could share God's Word with you each morning, or on, each week on Sunday morning. So last week, um, I was going to preach on the church theme of God's character, specifically His character that's revealed in Exodus 34, 5-7. And as the Bible Project put so well, God's character is both merciful and just. He is a God of mercy and a God of justice. And, you know, this really matters because a lot of times we can easily over- or underemphasize one or the other. And this affects both how we relate to God, but also how we relate to other people. You know, for example, I think for some of us who maybe grew up in a more strictly religious background, or maybe, you know, our parents were really strict or things like that, a lot of times might have emphasized God's justice. You know, and this comes out practically in life as you know we're sinners, and a lot of times, that as sinners, it's hard for us to come before God because God is holy, right? And And God is holy, and that's true, and we are sinners, that is true. But as an overemphasis, we feel this kind of underlying guilt in all that we do in life, and that guilt... A lot of times, even though we know intellectually that we are saved and that Jesus' blood covers our sin, that this guilt is still with us. And we actually don't fully believe that we have access to God through what Jesus did on the cross. And this might even affect our relationship with other people. You know, we a lot of times see that people are always sinful, and therefore we must keep people always at arm's length. And we actually, a lot of times, just don't think that people can change. Even though we say that God can change people, we just don't see that. And all of this coming from this overemphasis on God's justice. I share this example because I have personally struggled with this view of God for a long time, and even today sometimes slip back into this very easily. You know, even though I have a Master's in Divinity And I've been a Christian ever since I was a freshman in college. I think in my darker moments, I believe that, you know, I can't really change, that the gospel is good news that is in Jesus. Somehow, really, I just don't really fully believe it. You know, there is sin ever-present in my life, and I walk with guilt even though I say that Jesus has saved me with my lips. And this is why I think it's truly vitally important to reflect upon God's mercy and justice and to see that he is both and to be able to live in light of that tension. So to help us reflect on this, I'd like to read again Exodus chapter 34, 5 through 7. And as I read this, I want us to just reflect on all the ways that God has described his own character in these verses. So let me read that for us. This is in the NIV version. This is Exodus chapter 34 verses 5 through 7 Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaiming his name the Lord and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord the Lord the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness rebellion and sin yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished he punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And as we reflect on these verses, I like to actually focus on just two phrases within these verses. The first phrase i like us to f- reflect on and focus on is that God is slow to anger. And the second one is that God does not leave the guilty unpunished. And the reason I like to focus on these two phrases is because I think both of these really capture well the tension between God's mercy. And God's justice. God's mercy, in the sense that He is slow to be angry at our sin, at the ways that we have offended Him. And His justice, in the ways that He will not leave the guilty unpunished. But in order to unpack this tension between God's mercy and God's justice, His slowness to anger, and how He will not leave the guilty unpunished, I actually would like us to go back a few chapters, back into Exodus chapter 32. And here, the chapter 32 is a story of the golden calf. And in the story of the golden calf, we actually see all the characteristics that God has said who he is in chapter 34 played out in this golden calf story. So let's go ahead and turn back to Exodus chapter 32. So, you know, before I get into it, I think it would be helpful if you turn to it yourself I'll only be you know, reading select verses from this because, I mean, it's, it's a pretty long chapter and you know, we don't have all the time in the world, but I think it's really good that if you turn it and go through the story, and, and as I go through it, you can read it yourself, especially the parts that I will be summarizing too. So I'll be reading from the NASB version just to let you guys know, but th- that I just want you guys to be able to follow along as I go through Exodus chapter 32. So let me start by just reading verse 1. From this chapter. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Now, right off the bat, I'd like us to notice in verse 1 the people started getting antsy when Moses wasn't coming down from the mountain. They couldn't wait uh, for Moses, so they told Aaron to. Build them to make them this golden calf, a calf made of cast metal, right? But remember that these are the same people that saw God miraculously save them from Egypt, that dropped 12 plagues on this superpower Egypt through Moses, right? This is also the same people that, as they left Egypt, that God saved them from the Egyptians who were chasing after them in this pillar of fire by nine, and a pillar of cloud by day, like placed right between them and the Egyptians. And eventually, as they were trapped right before the Red Sea, that God parted the Red Sea for them, again through Moses. And as they passed through, the sea closed on the Egyptians as they were chasing them. This is the same people that saw all these things. And now because Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days, they couldn't wait for him. They really needed a God to go before them. I think this is really telling because this is, shows how a lot of times impatience can lead us to turn away from God, that impatience can easily turn away from God. And it's the Israelites' impatience that sets up the rest of this story. Because as they couldn't wait, they made Aaron make this cast idol, this golden calf, and this sin actually breaks the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments. And this is all happening while Moses is up on the mountain finalizing this covenant relationship with God. Now I just want you to imagine this that this a lot of times we hear covenant and these same things, it sounds very religious or formal. But just think of it as covenant is very similar to a marriage. That God was saying that he was going to marry this Israelite people. And in this marriage ceremony, as Moses is completing it with God, getting all the commandments that God wanted the Israelites to do. They cheated on God. It's like your spouse cheating you, cheating on you on the day of your marriage. I mean, talk about a relationship that's destined to fail. But I think in this horrendous failure, we see God's character shine through in this, in this chapter. So this leads me to the first phrase that I wanted us to focus on. That God is slow to anger. Now, when you read through this chapter, it's hard to see how God is slow to anger. In fact, God says in verse 10, So now leave me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. But I think when you take a closer look, we see that even though God is angry, he doesn't get angry right away. And we can see this actually in verses 7 through 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have behaved corruptly. They have quickly turned aside from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a cast metal calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and have said, This is your God, Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. But then the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now leave me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make you a great nation. Now the first thing to notice here is that God says to Moses to actually go down into the camp, and I think it's implied that Moses is to confront the Israelites for the sin that they have done. Right. So this may not seem like a lot, but taking into the context of this whole story, uh, even way back, going all the way back to Abraham, that over and over again, God's people, this this family that was chosen by God, to, you know, when God chooses Abraham out of all the people of the world, that, these people have, over and over again, actually have failed to be God's people. All right, I mean, even Abraham, uh, he was known for his faith, but you know, he told all these uh, kings that his wife was actually his sister, right, so that he wouldn't be killed. And then over and over again, we see generations of this family down the line fail and sin before God. And ultimately, here we see that same sin and that same failure playing out in this story. And, you know, God acknowledges this. He says in verse 9, Behold, they are an obstinate people. An obstinate meaning stubborn, refusing to change one's opinion or chosen course of action. Yet even though this people that God has chosen have been stubborn refusing to change their course of action, God still gives them an opportunity to turn back to him. What I mean is this, that God is definitely obviously angry. And I mean, who wouldn't be if, if you were cheated on, on on your wedding day? But, and God definitely, you know, in his anger says he wants to destroy them. But he doesn't actually destroy them right away. You know, we see that he tells Moses to go down and confront the people. And then he allows Moses to intercede on their behalf right and this is you can see this in verses 11 through 14 and then finally it gets to the point where moses convinces god to relent and god does not destroy his people so i think this picture is is actually a complex one we see god as angry but he is not the kind of god who has a short fuse and just right flat out destroys his people and i think God's slowness to anger is important for us to reflect on because to understand how we understand God's anger or judgment affects how we experience his mercy and his love. Right? And I believe that most of us agree that the statement, of the statement that God hates sin, right? and although this statement is true, I think the application of it is where it gets messy. You know, if God hates sin, then if I sin, does God hate me? Or if somebody else sins, does God hate that person? And I think most of us, many of us would say, of course not. God is love. He, he wouldn't hate me or this other person. But I think deep down inside, when we think about this, sometimes we, we think, well, does God hate me? I mean, in my sin, you feel the sense of guilt, and that guilt leads us to have that question still nag in the back of our mind. And this is why I think God's slowness to anger is, again, so important. If God is slow to anger when it comes to sin, then God can still hate sin, but he still loves me because he wants to give me the opportunity to turn back to him. And this opportunity to turn back to him is so critical in understanding God's character. God is not out to get us when we sin. Now, This may sound silly, but I believe when we do sin, again with that that guilt that we feel, that sometimes we feel like God is going to punish us right then and there. And while sin eventually does lead to God's punishment, especially if people or we persist in a sin over and over again, but eventually I think God's first reaction is not to punish. God's first reaction is actually to redeem God is in the business of redemption. He wants to redeem us if we're willing. And I think the Apostle Paul actually puts it best this way in Romans 2.4. In Romans 2.4, he says this, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God wants to lead us to repentance. He doesn't punish us right away because of our sin because he wants us to turn back to him. And again, now this, this time that he gives us is not forever. Right? There will come a time when God will bring justice to every wrong that's committed, including the wrong that we've committed. But what I want us to realize is that the time that God gives us to turn back to him, to repent, is evidence of his kindness to us. This slowness to anger that God has is evidence of his mercy for us. And at the same time, he's still a God of justice, right? But ultimately, he is not. his first reaction is not to punish or to bring judgment, but he wants us to be redeemed, to be his people. God is a loving and patient and kind God who is constantly asking us to turn back to him. Again, this time shows us that he is all these things. But I think if we stay stubborn, obstinate, if you will, to our sin, God can no longer allow our sin to go unchecked. And this leads me to the second phrase. God does not leave the guilty unpunished. So going back to Exodus 32 and the story of the golden calf, we see Moses coming down from the mountain after he pleads with God to relent, and God does. He comes down and back into the camp and, you know, what he sees is he sees all these people just partying, right? And it's now Moses' turn to get angry, right? He, he sees that what they've done is they totally disregarded God in the middle of this covenant-like ceremony of, of falling through and being married with God, right? And so he takes the golden calf, he grounds it up and puts this golden dust into water, It makes the Israelites drink this. And I won't read that for us, but if you're following along, this is in verses 19 to 20. And at this point, I think it's obvious, it should be obvious to the Israelites that what they're doing is wrong and they need to turn back to God. But they don't. Instead, let me read what happens next in verses 25 through 29. Now, when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control, to the point of being an object of ridicule among their enemies. Moses then stood at the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. And he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Every man of you put his sword on his thigh, and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp, and kill every man his brother, and every man his friend, and every man his neighbor." So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. So rather than coming to their senses, the Israelites go further out of control. And so Moses has to draw the line. So here you see he goes to the entrance of the camp, the gate of the camp, and calls out, whoever is for the Lord, come to me." And this is a very clear statement of that Moses is now drawing the line. He's saying, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And then here comes the hard part as, you know, thinking about this as we read it, right? All the sons of Levi come to the entrance, right? And then Moses tells them that God says to go and kill everyone that's still in the camp. They, you know, and even if they are their brother, their friend, or their neighbor, and the Levites, this, this this tribe of Levi, they obey. They obey what Moses says, and they go through the camp and they kill about three thousand people or men. And I admit that this is sometimes hard to understand, right? How that God does this, and why does He do this? But I think there are three important observations to make as we keep in mind as we read through this. Right? The first is this, that, that Moses draws a line at the camp entrance. And so what this means is that everyone who is for God should be at the entrance of the camp. And everyone who is not for God is still in the camp. And I think, again, this, this shows this slowness thing or God's mercy because over and over again we see that God is giving opportunity after opportunity Moses pleads with God. Um, You know, God relents. He even grinds up the gold, this golden calf, and makes them drink it. This is all ways that are opportunities that the Israelites could come to their senses and turn back to God. And so Moses finally draws the line at the entrance and says, whoever is for God, come to him. And so everyone that comes to him is for God. Everyone that's left, they are, are okay with what they're doing and they're persisting in their rebellion against God. But, and even that, before Moses draws the line, this is the second observation, that everyone in the camp really has sinned against God. Right? Remember that God wants to destroy all the people, but Moses pleads with God not to do that. And this is all the people that are in the camp. And so in God's eyes, everyone here is guilty. Uh, but yet he gives, through Moses, this chance to turn back to them, as Moses draws that final line. And finally, I just wanted to point out that the number of people that were killed by God were 3,000 3, men. This is a lot of people, but just to give a little bit more context, the total number of men who had left Egypt at the time was about 600,000. So like this is from Exodus chapter 12, verse 37. But 3,000 out of the 600,000 men were killed that day. So I think taking these observations into account, God's judgment for the golden calf is not on all the Israelites, but only those that persisted in their sin. I think this really does show that God does forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin, but also does not leave the guilty unpunished. And I realize that even as I say this, that sometimes that just is unhelpful even as we think about, well, what does this mean for us? how How do we live this out? So I'd like to offer one major misconception when we think about God's justice and His punishment. I think really as we think about these things, that one major misconception is that a lot of times we view, when we think about God's punishment, we view it apart from His justice. We view God's punishment apart from His justice. Or to put it another way, we always should try to view God's judgment in light of his justice. God doesn't randomly bring his justice on people. He sovereignly knows everything about everyone, including all our motives. When he brings judgment, it's totally, totally fear. And this is why I think it's helpful reflecting on God's justice. I think that's why it's healthy and helpful I think in our culture, we have a tendency to individualize everything. We think about our sin, how it affects me, and how it's messed up my life. But a lot of times we don't widen the circle and look at how our sin has affected the lives of those around us. How our sin has affected the lives of our spouse, of our kids, of our friends, of our colleagues, of our family. Like if we look at that, we can see how destructive sin is and how many times it's not just how it affects me, that affects the world around us. And this is why I think, if we're honest with ourselves, the problem isn't always just out there. It's also in here. It's in here where our sin is causing destruction, and left, if left unchecked, could you know, destroy so many more lives than just our own. And I think this is why God eventually does not leave the guilty unpunished. He sees the destruction that we can wreck, not in our lives, but those of the lives around us. And he still gives us a choice. We could continue to stay in our sin, or we could turn back to him. And I think this is where God's mercy and God's justice really do intersect. That in a lot of ways, God's justice is also, the main purpose of it is also to redeem. Again, God's in the business of redemption. His justice is not arbitrary or random, but ultimately he wants to make his world into a better one, into one that he has originally created, one without sin, without death, without all these things, destruction. And in order to do that, I think he gives us time to repent, just as we are sharing before, that God is slow to anger. But at the same time, Eventually, his justice needs to be served. And so I think, even ultimately, this justice in God's judgment is one that is for redemption, is to redeem, and not arbitrarily just to provide judgment on us. And so I'd like to end just with this thought there is tension between God's mercy and his justice. I mean, that's, yeah. Obviously, not easy to understand. And I I feel like uh, even in this sermon, even though I tried to show you in different ways, I think this is just maybe food for thought in a lot of ways to help us chew on this tension between God's mercy and God's justice. But I do believe that there is one place, as we reflect upon more, uh, that really is helpful in thinking about this tension. And that place is the death of Jesus. I think at the cross, God's mercy and his justice were shown in perfect unison. God sending Jesus to die on the cross was both an act of mercy and of his justice. It was his mercy because Jesus' death covers our consequence of our sin. Right? We deservedly have to face God's justice because of our sin but God sent Jesus to cover over that. And we experience God's justice through the cross because Jesus himself is the one that faced the consequence of our sins, and God made everything right through Jesus. And I think these truths are ones that you know, many of us are familiar with, but I think there are many layers to this, especially to the death of Jesus and how it affects our lives today. So I just wanted to encourage all of us, as we think about this, as we think about, especially with what's going on around us in the world, in our country, I think it's so easy to look at our circumstances and the people around us and point the finger at how messed up everyone is. But I think, in many ways, God is asking us to see that He is both a God of mercy and a God of justice, that He is asking us to see that He is giving us time to turn back to Him. And ultimately, he will make everything right. So I'd just like to now give us time to reflect on these things. Uh, The praise team will lead us in a last closing song. So just please continue to reflect on how we live in this tension between God's mercy and God's justice. And after the praise team is done with the closing song, I'll come and give us the benediction. May God help us to see both His mercy and His justice each and every day. And may as we go forth in this world, may He help us to live in light of both His mercy and His justice as we strive to partner with God in making this world more like His kingdom each and every day. And may He do so in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.